Hi, this is Tanya Domi. Welcome to The Thought Project, recorded at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, fostering groundbreaking research and scholarship in the arts, social sciences, and sciences. In this space, we talk with faculty and doctoral students about the big thinking and big ideas generating cutting-edge research, informing New Yorkers and the world. This week's guest, Heath Brown, is an associate professor of public policy at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the Graduate Center, CUNY. He has worked at the U.S. Congressional Budget Office as a research fellow, at the American Bus Association as a policy assistant, and at the Council of Graduate Schools as research and policy director. He is author of several books, including Immigrants in the Electoral Politics and The Tea Party Divided, The Hidden Diversity of a Maturing Movement. He is also an expert contributor to The Hill, as well as to The Atlantic Magazine and The American Prospect Magazine. Welcome back to The Thought Project, Professor Brown. It's great to be back here. I think this is either three or four, which must put me in some sort of very special circumstance here. Absolutely. You're an exceptional guest at an exceptional time. So when this podcast is published, we have 25 days to go for the Iowa caucus, the first contest of the Democratic Party's presidential nominee contest. And we're now down to really five major candidates, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, and Amy Klobuchar. And second tier, and not to be disregarded either, is Mike Bloomberg, Cory Booker, another billionaire, Tom Steyer, and Andrew Yang, the lone minority left in this lineup of candidates. Um, but the second tier's got some, you know, issues of qualifying for for the next um, the next uh, debate. Uh, they either don't have enough donors or their polling is subpar, so they're not going to be on the stage. So right now, Heath, I want to ask you, do you have any predictions on Iowa? Well, I'm so glad that you didn't ask me to name all the candidates because you're, you're better. <laughs> your mind works better than mine uh, on this. Uh, you're, you're just just uh, you've got that information at your fingers. We, we still do have so many candidates out there that are in the race, but it really does come down to these five or so. Um, you know, I think on the one hand, it doesn't really matter right now who wins Iowa. I think maybe more than any other cycle that we've been in, who wins Iowa? It's hard to imagine any of these candidates winning and, and that, that directing them to uh, the nomination in a way that it might have in the past. And so, so you don't think it matters in terms of momentum? I don't think it matters. I don't, mm, I don't think momentum really matters. You know, obviously the one that people care most about is Mayor Pete. And if he comes out on top and there's any kind of margin there, uh, that's really, really interesting. And so maybe with the exception of him, if, it, if um, any of the others come out on top, it could be interesting, but I don't think that this is going to have the uh, the, the momentum that, that Iowa uh, uh, caucuses have in the past. To me, the two that I'm most interested in are South Carolina and Nevada. Uh, those seem to me the most interesting uh, early uh, contests that are going to say so much about it because the Democratic electorate in those two states is, uh, I think, much more interesting. We'll say much more about who ultimately is able to persist in this race 
and who has the really has the legs for this. I don't think Iowa does that really. I see. Interesting. Well, I think you're right. In South Carolina, we're talking about major African-American vote. And when you get to Nevada, we're talking about labor and we're talking about Latino votes. Uh, and, you know, in 2016, we all thought it was going to be the year, year of the Latino voter. Is that really going to happen in 2020? What do you think? You know, I, I is it is it going to be the year of Latino? You know, I, I don't know that. Uh-huh. I mean, I think the recent... Um, decision um, uh, by Secretary Castro to uh, uh, get out of the race in his decision to endorse Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. is really the most interesting piece of evidence right now that that dynamic is going to be in play. Uh, Nevada, that was a big move. That's a big move by Castro. And he was in New York City last night with Warren. He was doing the stand. He was doing the selfies with her. It wasn't just her. It was her and Castro together. I know some people who were at the event in Brooklyn last night. Yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. Um, it's a big deal, and it's a surprise. And, and I suspect that we're going to have maybe another surprise before South Carolina. So I think that, that sometimes these things have uh, a little momentum unto themselves. And his decision maybe is one that others are going to take a little bit more seriously. Our mayor hasn't made an endorsement yet. Uh, from from what I can tell. And I don't know if people are going to be looking for his endorsement in the way that they are for some other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's another example of somebody who has tried to, you know, sit at the sideline, uh, take advantage of the opportunity of people courting him. I'm sure there are people courting him as there are lots of different uh, major officials out there. And so that's another one to pay attention to as we move over, over the next couple of weeks. So that's what the current mirror, but a former mayor is now in the race, sitting out the, the first four contests, and Mike Bloomberg is spending money like we have never seen before in the history of American presidential elections. Uh, and I think he's you, – you've written a book about the role of money in, in uh, politics, uh, but – Bloomberg's level of spending is really quite remarkable. I think one of the messages is we have to beat Trump. I'm going to I'm going to do my part whether he gets elected, whether he is competitive or not. I mean, his numbers have come up. I, I don't know what they are at the state level, but national level, we're looking like about 7% right now on various polls. And we're looking at him dropping both he and Trump are going to drop $10 million on Super Bowl ads, which most campaigns have never had that kind of money to spend. They just don't have that discretionary money to drop on Super Bowl day. Right, right. Absolutely. And, you know, it's um, <laughs> what's really motivating all these candidates is always a little hard to tell. You'd say, well, in face value, if they want to become president. But there's always these secondary, third level motivations that are very hard to understand. For the former mayor, it seems that he's interested in sitting in the background, waiting for some of the other candidates to drop out, knowing that he has the money in hand to spend at any point and he doesn't have to worry too much about fundraising. It seems also that he's the candidate, maybe along with Joe Biden, that is positioning his campaign in the most direct way in opposition to the president. Now, all of the candidates are obviously uh, uh, vocal in their opposition to President Trump. 
but many of them are positioning their campaigns in a slightly different way on certain kinds of issues, uh, on aspects of their personal identity in some ways. But it seems that uh, 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 the former mayor, Bloomberg, is really taking on uh, Trump as the, as the main reason to, um, to back him, that, that he's the one who's able to take on Trump because somehow he sits in this billionaire class, uh, that he's able to challenge him in a way that these other candidates uh, aren't able to challenge. And so he's going to play this waiting game. I don't think it's going to work, uh, but it does seem like his strategy is a novel one the money on one, the one hand and sitting out these early races on the other. Yeah, very, very different, very unique from anything we've ever seen. Um, so speaking of Trump, uh, we are in the cycle. We're in this, the, we're in the primaries. We're getting ready to have the first contest. And it looks like we may have a trial in the Senate. And I'd like to hear your thoughts about the effect of the impeachment process on on the the election of the president this year. I mean, the, this this election is coming, and we're, we're, for the first time, we we have somebody in the first term being impeached. Yeah, it's a it's a big big deal. It's a big deal historically, but the way in which things look like mm-hmm. they are likely to play out. Uh, now, with this administration, you never know from day to day what's going to happen. Right. So who knows really what's going to happen as soon as we're done with this uh, recording. But if things stay along the current path and, and uh, Senator McConnell is able to maintain the control that he has um, uh, masterfully uh, maintained in the Senate, it seems like this is going to be a process that's going to take place over a very short amount of time, is likely to have a vote that um, as close to exonerates the president as, as you can get. And so I suspect by the time we get to the real active campaign by this summer, uh, the impeachments... It's forgotten. It's just not going to be registering Mm -hmm. the way that other things are. You know, and what what I I guess leads me to that conclusion is there are things that happen with this presidency that just haven't happened in the past. And the the assassination of the number two person, number two military official, or maybe number one military official, number two Two official in in Iran, uh, is something that that three weeks ago no one would have predicted. And if that happens, and there's so many other examples of things that, that we simply have never expected, who knows what's going to happen as this campaign really starts to heat up. And so I suspect the things we don't know right now are, are much more likely to drive this this campaign than the things that we currently know about. Well, I just want to go back, though, to the impeachment, because we've got about five or six Republican senators that are in purple states or states that are going blue. Uh, they're going to have to vote. They're going to have to vote if there is, in fact, a trial. And I could foresee um, ads being cut on those votes. Because Susan Collins is, you know, uh, is on the bubble in Maine. Um, she's she's really in a blue state now, statewide. The governor, you know, it's it's gone, it's going blue. Cory Gardner in in Colorado, it's in a very purple state. It's a swing state. You've got a situation where both seats are up in Arizona, and Arizona is definitely purple going blue. And if you're below Tucson, it's blue. Uh, and you know you've got you've got some really competitive races. Is it going to matter how they vote on the impeachment? It'd you know, be uh, interesting to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think we live in such polarized times uh, that finding that voter that is undecided uh, mm-hmm. about President Trump right now 
is, is a hard search. Uh, similarly, within each one of these states, uh, each one of these candidates that you mentioned, Susan Collins, uh, Cory Gardner, yeah. uh, are, in, uh, are going to be in very, very competitive elections. It's hard for me, me to imagine uh, any sizable group of the electorate uh, that would be looking to a single vote, even a very, very significant single vote, as the basis on which they're going to use to vote for or against these candidates. Um, it seems to me that a lot of this is already baked into uh, Susan Collins' campaign and Cory Gardner's campaign. Those open seats, I think, are, are much more interesting in uh, how the impeachment proceedings are going to play out in those campaigns. Uh, but I think of uh, uh, voters in Maine uh, already know uh, Susan Collins. I don't think a vote in this in this situation, especially the way it's ultimately it's going to be, be set discriminate. up. It's not going to be a discriminator in your view. It's going to uh, simply reinforce the beliefs that are so mm-hmm. deeply held and the partisan divisions that are that are deeper now than they have been in the last mm-hmm. 50 years. And so, so much of that um, overwhelms all of these uh, uh, historically significant, um, but, but in our political moment, moment somewhat insignificant uh, uh, events. Okay. So, speaking of McConnell, McConnell's uh, home state of Kentucky just went blue in the governor's race. He's got a real race. He has got the lowest approval rating of any U.S. senator in the country. Amy McGrath, a former Marine Corps fighter pilot, is challenging him, and she has raised $17 million. He's never had an opponent raise $17 million. Uh, what do you think about this race you and this I, head-to-head? Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, um, the the state has had this sort of at the— uh, uh, these these elections where Democrats have won, sort of surprisingly, at the gubernatorial level. And so that's something that has happened and, and because of the state-level politics. 2018, really big, big shift there. You know, and so 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 we don't want to overestimate what, what uh, mm-hmm. the gubernatorial uh, outcomes are. But if anyone is going to be sitting holding the bag for uh, President Trump, it is Mitch McConnell. Um, and he now faces a, an opponent in this race uh, that is as formidable a, as you can imagine, somebody who brings so much to this, this uh, election. And so I think it's a really interesting one. I would never bet against Mitch McConnell. Uh, of course. This is, this is of one course. of the most skilled uh, tacticians uh, that the Senate has ever had, but he's certainly not the most effective campaigner that the Senate has ever had. And so his liabilities have never been within the chamber. They've always been outside, outside on the campaign trail. Sure. So if he's ever uh, vulnerable, it will be in, in, uh, in this election uh, because what he does in the Senate is, is so um, effective and, and powerful uh, that, that the credit he's going to take on the campaign trail, especially uh, on the judicial nomination side, I, I think is ultimately going to sway things in, in his favor. And so it's not somebody I'd ever bet against. Okay, so we just uh, we just mentioned the the uh, Trump strike on Iran, uh, taking out the second number two uh, leader in the political chain over there, and then last night the retaliation of about fifteen ballistic missiles that really were to no effect, and fortunately no one was killed. Um, has Trump put foreign policy as an issue into this election cycle, given these most recent events? Yeah, I mean, this this and a couple of others recently have 
Um, well, of have, course, the Ukraine situation, which is very, I think, muddled in right. in many ways uh, for the impeachment. But but now you've got Iran now as well. Right. But but no. And as you say, no issue um, is as um, important and significant geopolitically as the um, relationship between the U.S. and Iran and Iraq and the um, the the very difficult long term. Uh, relationships between these three different countries, right? And so, in, in thinking about this today, I was I was trying to think about you know kind of how foreign policy ultimately plays out. And as for somebody who sort of studies government, it's very interesting, and it's such an area. And uh, you know, there's a situation you have as much firsthand experience as I do uh, that the way in which diplomacy works is so much more personalized than other parts of government. We don't really talk about. You know, the, the individual personal relationships of deputy secretaries of education, sure. the way we do in the State Department or in the national security apparatus. And so what what I'm most interested right now is is the the way in which this administration is is going to be able to get its foreign policy team to actually function in a way that it's done everything to undermine. Uh, if if this administration has done nothing else over its first three odd years, uh, they have had rapid, rapid turnover at some of the highest levels. Uh, the White House um, is as different now as it was when it started as any White House that we've seen in the past. And so their ability to, to actually deal with an international conflict is in some ways uh, becomes a campaign issue because it really does get to this question of the sort of suitability and ability to govern. Uh, this plays most uh, into uh, Joe Biden's campaign. And so I think it's the Biden campaign that most welcomes foreign policy as an issue on the, the sort of campaign agenda. Uh, I think Joe Biden has the strongest uh, hand to play, uh, and he would be the most interested in the debate uh, uh, with with the other presidential candidates and also with Donald Trump being about foreign policy. I think he would be eager to take that on for the the depth of his knowledge, uh, the range of his experiences, especially uh, in comparison to somebody like Mayor Pete, who has, uh, though he has military background, he has no foreign policy background to speak of. Joe Biden has the exact opposite of that. So he does. And because he has that experience, he also has some baggage. So, you know, the Iraq war is probably, I think, one of the most significant drawbacks to the Biden candidacy when you talk about who's supporting Bernie, who's supporting Warren, uh, and neither of those two candidates that I've just mentioned really have been that outspoken on foreign policy in general. I mean, Bernie came out and said, this is wrong about Ukraine. And of course, it's wrong, you know, that we launched a strike on the number two in Iran. But all that being said, uh, this has really been, I think, uh Foreign policy hasn't really been discussed that extensively. So if you're somebody like Buttigieg or even Warren or, and Klobuchar was on Morning Joe this morning discussing these issues, this gives you an opportunity to weigh in in a way that you haven't yet. And it may be a missed opportunity as well not to say anything. Yeah, some of this is really going to depend on how this plays out over the next two, three, four weeks. Um, in 2007, if we go back in time, the importance of the anti-war protests 
to Barack Obama's ascendancy right. um, is something we don't think about that much right now. But it was uh, significant. It was significant. Very significant. Scholars have written about it. Right. Now, it, it sort of mo- uh, moved away, and those, those protests and that, that movement didn't sustain past his election, even though many of those international conflicts, those wars, persisted. So one of the questions is, how is this going to play out on the social movement protest side? Uh, that's a side that Joe Biden is unlikely to be very successful in. If this turns into a war and peace debate rather than the nuts and bolts of foreign policy, mm-hmm. uh, I think it favors some candidates over others. Uh, if instead uh, the the um, back and forth that we've seen over the last 48 hours or so um, is is sort of all that we see and then the uh, subsequent months or so ends up being just a very, very hot negotiated piece. Um, that sort of sets the stage in a, in a slightly different way. But if this turns into a war, if this really turns into an act of conflict, then we have to look to whether there is a anti-war, uh, a peace movement that becomes significant for the Democratic Party and becomes a, a dividing line between those like Joe Biden, who have been hawkish in the past, and, and others like Bernie Sanders, um, in particular, who have been much more dovish. And then those those track records, I think, pay off a lot. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, um, I would say uh, it's interesting. Uh, Warren was on The View yesterday. Uh, well, I saw, I saw it yesterday. I don't know if she was actually on it yesterday. And she had an interesting debate with Meghan McCain about about the war about what's what was happening and one of the things that she does which is so interesting is that she always uh compliments her brothers who all served in the military now she went on to the senate armed services committee by no mistake i mean it was planned and she took a seat there uh to develop her national security credentials but i don't think she's done much with it yet I think you're right. This is this is not a prominent part. I mean, this is somebody with so many policy expertise. Right. Um, have we had a candidate, uh, maybe short of Hillary Clinton, that has had the breadth of policy areas that they can speak to, not just with a reasoned opinion, but actual hands-on day-to-day experience? Hillary Clinton had that. Right. Elizabeth Warren has that. Uh, Elizabeth Warren doesn't have nearly the level of experience that Hillary Clinton had right. in the inter- international realm. Uh, she has made overtures to it. Previous candidates uh, have also been greatly lacking in this, and it has not necessarily held them back. Uh, Bill Clinton uh, didn't have very much. Barack Obama also. Um, and so she's trying to sort of walk this tightrope and uh, play to her strengths while recognizing that this is always going to be an area in a presidential campaign uh, that comes up and somebody who has the experiences is always going to be uh, advantaged in that. Yeah, and just like you mentioned, we don't know what's going to happen in the next five, six months. Anything could happen given what has been going on in this presidency. And going back to your point about diplomacy, I I just, I'm going to weigh in here and say that I think one of the major, major uh, indicators of Trump and his, uh, I think, quite, his dislike of government has been the gutting of the State Department. On day one, they fired the entire seventh floor. We're talking about 150 years of diplomatic experience. It's not replicable 
It can't you can't just you know bring in a junior foreign service officer. Uh, so many people with so much uh, experience are no longer there, and they're leaving. And there's also been a precipitous exit of people from the Pentagon. And we'll note in the last 24, 48 hours, this letter somehow emerged from the Pentagon, was sent to the Iraqi government, filled with grammatical errors. It was an incomplete letter. It wasn't even signed, notifying them that they were going to withdraw 5,200 troops. Um, so you're talking about, and also the chairman of the Joint Chiefs is brand new. He's relatively new. Esper as a Boeing executive, did go to West Point. He and Pompeo were in the same class. Reporting indicates that Pompeo really wanted this strike since last summer and had been working with Asper to get rid of some people so they could actually make it happen. Yeah, you know, the, the area of foreign policy, as I suggested earlier, has these personal dimensions. Uh, where right. people went to college right. seems to matter. And, and the... Right. the the infighting, you know this infighting as as well as anyone else with your experiences. Clinton administration was famous for the conflicts between Richard Holbrook and some of the other foreign policy uh, established, Warren Christopher and and so forth. And so how that plays out, it just makes, makes it a very different uh, uh, area of government to consider. Now, sometimes that's oversold and, and we personalize things that are ultimately much more bureaucratic than we would think. But I'm so curious, and you know, I came here today, and I was I was wanted to ask you a question, uh-huh. and the question I wanted to ask you is, what's happening at these embassies right now? What goes on in an embassy after this kind of thing happens at the maybe not at the highest level, but what's happening among the diplomatic corps uh, when when the things that we've expected in the past, which is relatively clear signals about what U.S. policy is. Uh, relatively clear doctrine on following international law. That has been the norm in, in, in um, embassies across the world, where they know, what, they know what the score is. What do you expect is going on in, in the various embassies across the Middle East and, and elsewhere? Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that you ask. I mean, I am a member of the Women's Foreign Policy Network. And so there's a number of people in that network that are active diplomats or they actively serve in the government. And of course, I I have many colleagues and friends around the world. People are worried. They're very afraid. And there is this back channel within the State Department where you can protest a decision. It's been long Used, it's a tradition within the, within the State Department. People are no longer using it. So, what is, what is that? How would that function? Like you would you would submit uh, an an anonymous. Well, they're going to know who you are. Uh, a back channel where you protest a policy. Uh, and this this I came to know about this during the Clinton administration and the Bosnian War as an example, because a number of diplomats resigned because there was no movement forward to interdict and stop the war. I mean, Clinton did do that, but ultimately it took it took a while. And so people, you know, it's done from a set of beliefs about, having the an avenue to air out issues that people talk about in their offices 
or they talk about it within an embassy, like, why aren't we doing X and we're doing Y now and this is counterproductive because of whatever. And so we're talking about people leaving. I mean, they have lost more people in the State Department than in history. And you can't replace them. And people are, some people are hoping and praying they can wait out Trump and that that there will be a change of power, change of administrations in 2020. And people are hanging in. Uh, you know, when the attack happened on the Iranian official, um, many people, you know, were told they had to leave. And so there's been this really disruptive, you have to get out. For example, on the Ukraine situation, we know that the ambassador was called and said, you have to pack your bags within 24 hours and you're gone. Um, people swear they take an oath to the Constitution of the United States. They dedicate their lives on behalf of the American people, and they're shocked by the shoddy treatment by this administration. Yeah, you know, my, my I don't have the firsthand experiences in this, but right. I've had many students go into the Foreign Service. Right. Um, uh, and, and what we know is that the, the, the conflict is, is persistent and historical. Right, we're to- we're talking about some of the most intractable problems that the sure. world have ever. For sure. Everything from from uh, nuclear relations to to the the, the conflicts, the ethnic conflicts right. that that run throughout the world. So, every one of these people enters into this because of the inherent conflict, not trying to avoid conflict. Right. So, not one of the people that you've you've alluded to uh, is is opposed to conflict. What seems like matters so much and is, is one of these threads is that that runs throughout many, many of the questions about the Trump administration is the question of trust. And that's really, I think, what most people are, are so uh, uh, worried about right now, which is when one of the strategies of the Trump administration has been to undermine trust, trust in the civil servants, that are employed across government. Yeah, the deep state. He refers to them as the deep state. It's been one of the three hallmarks of the the, the Trump administration right. has been this undermining of the trust in, in the institutions that have existed for generations. When you do that, it makes it very, very difficult during an international conflict for the citizenry to even understand what's going on. Um, it's also difficult for those in government uh, to use the mechanisms like the ones that you're describing, which right. is a, a way to express uh, uh, the rational disagreement uh, that is a part of making complex decisions. But the way in which the president has taken on whistleblowers, uh, the way in which the president has addressed uh, dissent really in any form, uh, undermines the trust that civil servants have that their opinions are going to be uh, taken seriously and not treated as treasonous. And this runs across so many things, and I think this, this most, most recent uh, violent, violent conflict that we're seeing right now in the news um, just 
only um, illustrates that to a much, much greater extent. And and the stakes are really high. So, but what I would also say, another another aspect that characterizes this administration that differs from all previous administrations is the dismissal of expertise and education and experience. And these people are not only sidelined, but they're pushed out. Um, so it's, I, I would then stretch and go the next step and say, I don't believe he's going to be able to effectively govern given what we know up to this point. So that was uh, a fear that all of us have had that, oh my God, launching an attack on Iran, one of our longest term adversaries, uh, was just really fraught with all kinds of danger. So we, it seems like it may, they, they, have, they have backed off. It seems like both parties have backed off, fortunately, um, and we'll see. But, but I, don't, I do think that because of all the reasons we've just discussed, I do think that the Democrats have an obligation to address these issues somehow effectively in the campaign. And I want, I want to go back to the Democrats one more time. Let's make a swing back is that, as you know, the Democratic Party has touted itself as a party of big tent. And... Um, AOC just recently questioned that big tent and said in a different government, like in a different parliamentary system specifically, she didn't say parliamentary, but that's what she intended, I believe, that she and Joe Biden wouldn't be in the same party. Um, And also with the top five that we now see, uh, previously everyone was bragging it's the most diverse, gender diverse, racially diverse crop of candidates. Um, what do you think now uh, about this situation where now all the candidates are white? And do you think that given what's happened within the party uh, and Doug Jones' election in Alabama is an example where black women really came forward, African-American women really drove that race. And many people in the party say they are the backbone of the party. Do you think there will be a candidate of color maybe in the second slot? Do you mean the vice presidential yes, slot? Yes, yes, in this, in this uh, election. Yeah, you know, uh, so who gets to the top um, and, and the changes that have recently been made uh, in the nominating process for the Democratic Party, were promised to democratize, small d, democratize, the way in which uh, uh, the primaries worked. And there were all sorts of decisions made uh, that were uh, efforts to um, equalize the process. Right. Diminish uh, the superdelegates. You know, make this not right. the, the smoke-filled room that, that we imagine uh, from the past. And so... Many of those changes were, were made, uh, maybe not all the ones that everyone wanted, but, but a good portion of them were made. Uh, but I think the fact that those changes have been made and the current crop uh, reflects the same demographics of, of the presidential uh, options of the past just reinforce, reinforces how difficult it actually is to run. Uh, Tom Steyer. I agree. I really agree with that point. Mike Bloomberg, um, uh, I think, reinforced that only more. Uh, It is relatively easy to enter the race. 
and the diversity of the original pool of 21 or two or right. three candidates is evidence of that. But to sustain, uh, to stay in the race, to, to grow the organization necessary, to remain at the top uh, in, a, in a system that um, tends to uh, advantages the things uh, that, that uh, candidates um, who have had to come up in different ways uh, are going to struggle most with is part of why we end up, I think, with the, the array that, that we um, have currently uh, that are running. Um, uh, uh, Cory Booker's uh, inability to gain traction, uh, given all of his uh, qualifications, given that his qualifications sound almost identical to Mayor Pete's, except for the fact that he's been in the Senate for now a number of years, a- and, an additional and, qualification. And was a mayor of a much bigger city with probably b- bigger problems. So his ability, inability to, to um, gain the traction uh, with, with pretty significant name recognition, uh, the same thing could be said for Kamala Harris, um, is I think evidence that the, the structural barriers to political inequality are much deeper than we, we often like to admit. And so while the, the um, backbone of the Democratic Party, uh, the electorate, uh, as, as people might, might describe, may be much more diverse than it ever has been in the past and could be credited with, with all sorts of victories, including the one in Alabama, uh, but also the 2018 oh, congressional significant, elections. Significant, significant, yeah. Is... is um, is in some ways um, uh, the most pleasant surprise uh, of recent politics. It's the it's the persistence of the the structural barriers that prevent candidates from gaining the traction that their resumes uh, would suggest is what is just simply evidence that 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 change takes place very very slowly. Money still matters a lot. Race still matters a lot to a lot of voters. And you end up. I would up, say gender does too. Gender does too, absolutely. Yeah. And so those are, I think, things um, that we sometimes underestimate. And when you have a candidate like Kamala Harris and you say, that's somebody who looks like um, she has all of the qualifications uh, to be the nomination and she, she um, is unable to, to even get to the first contest, is evidence that, that a lot more needs to change in the country. I do agree with that. I will say, though, I think the Democrats are very energized. A lot of people were worried about money. And, you know, Trump raised $46 million in the last quarter. The Democrats raised more than Trump together as a group. So that indicates, I think, that the, the basic party people and the people who are supporting, who are out in the primaries and they're on the campaign staffs, it's very clear Democrats are energized. Yeah, and you know these things have happened in the past. Happened in two thousand eight, uh, where the Obama supporters and the Clinton supporters uh, going to ultimately uh, get along and, and mobilize and energize the the party together. It happened in twenty sixteen, where the Bernie supporters and Clinton supporters going to be able to work together in some way. And despite the fact that Barack Obama won in two thousand eight and Hillary Clinton lost in two thousand sixteen, that isn't the most obvious reason why those outcomes happened. And so. I suspect when it all comes down, uh, there will be a, a sufficient level of party unity uh, to take them through the election. And some of these other unpredictable things, like the unpredictable things that happened in 2016, uh, seem likely to, to happen again. Uh, we're in a highly polarized country 
where we kind of, we know pretty well who the vast majority of people are going to be voting for. It's these other things that in 2020, everyone I think is most worried about. It's the things that we don't know about. The disinformation campaigns, um, the voter, voter, su- voter suppression, the voter suppression, which sometimes happens um, at times when you don't even expect it, purging uh, voter rolls at, at times that are uh, uh, most uh, recently illegal. in Wisconsin, most recently, yeah, legally purged in Wisconsin. Right, and so it seems like this we're setting up for a similar kind of incredibly chaotic, unpredictable campaign uh, that is likely to have. Um, a good deal of party unity, um, but but a highly polarized and, and uh, uh, election as we move ahead. Well, we will have you back. Um, we'll have you back after maybe Super Tuesday. We can look at this situation. Uh, who's going to have enough money to get through Super Tuesday? I think that's a question that's hanging out there. But we will have you back, Keith Brown. No, I'd love to come back. Thanks for tuning into The Thought Project, and thanks to today's guest, Professor Heath Brown of the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the Graduate Center, CUNY. The Thought Project is brought to you with production, engineering, and technical assistance by Kevin Wolf of CUNY TV. I'm Tanya Domi. Tune in next week.